These episodes feature contemporary artists presenting the latest exhibitions and projects. This podcast is brought to you by the Periton Gallery, based in Paris, Hong Kong, New York, Seoul, Tokyo, and Shanghai. Bon après-midi à tous. On va on va commencer. Donc, je me présente. Je suis Paul Arden. Donc historien de l'art contemporain et j'ai le plaisir d'animer cette rencontre aujourd'hui avec euh, Daniel Archam donc, qui fait l'exposition euh, à la galerie d'Emmanuel Perrotin. Peut-être euh, certains d'entre vous le, le connaissent-ils, il a, il a eu l'occasion déjà de présenter son travail euh, à Paris. Nous allons donc faire euh, rapidement euh, une présentation euh, donc en français de, de ce travail que je vais faire à présent, puis nous aurons une discussion donc euh, en anglais, euh, en américain, en l'occurrence, avec euh, euh, Daniel, mais on m'a dit que ça ne posait pas de, de problème particulier. Alors, je vais vous, je vais vous présenter. I want to, to present you first in French, so I apologize, but uh, I have to do that now. Donc, alors, un artiste américain, nord-américain, donc euh, états-unien, comme on dit maintenant, né en 1980 dans, dans l'Ohio, à, à Cleveland. Donc, il fait des études d'art dans une, une institution importante qui, qui est Cooper Union, Where you have studied, très important. Donc, il va développer son, son travail en Floride, à Miami, euh, où il aura son, son premier atelier, où il va rencontrer d'ailleurs Emmanuel Perrotin, euh, avant que Miami devienne euh, bon le, le, le lieu notamment du Art Basel et, et cette foire euh, effervescente que, que vous connaissez. Puis, il s'installe à, à New York, où il vit actuellement. Il a son atelier à, à Brooklyn. Voilà. Alors, euh, c'est un artiste, euh, on peut dire multidisciplinaire. Euh, il commence par la, la photographie, également le dessin. Vous verrez tout à l'heure, on va faire une présentation avec des images, un très grand nombre de, de compositions, on pourrait presque dire post-surréalistes. Hein. Euh, certaines, d'ailleurs, pouvant faire penser un peu à Manray, je ne sais pas si on en, on en verra. Puis, euh, eh bien, de la photographie du dessin, on passe à des formes artistiques plus élargies, à l'architecture aussi, à travers le dessin d'architecture, euh, les aménagements, les environnements, la performance également, et le cinéma. Hein, il y a toute une dimension euh, filmique du travail de, de Daniel Archam, qui ne sera sans doute pas assez évoqué ici, mais qui est importante. Je vous renvoie à, à, à YouTube, hein, vous pourrez trouver un grand nombre de, de, de ces films donc en, en ligne. Alors c'est un artiste assez rapidement qui, qui va bénéficier de, bon, du regard attentionné de gens, euh, euh, disons, importants dans, dans le monde de la culture con contemporaine, en particulier euh, Merce Cunningham, hein, le, le chorégraphe et danseur que, que vous connaissez tous. En 2006, donc quelques années avant la mort de, de Merce Cunningham, euh, Daniel, euh, Daniel Archam sera invité à concevoir les décors pour son ballet, qui était Yves Space, je, je crois, donc, et il fera d'autres collaborations aussi avec des, donc, des, des, des chorégraphes. Je ne veux pas rentrer dans le détail, on verra ça un petit peu avec les images. Euh, également, des collaborations avec des marques Adidas, hein, par exemple, la marque de, de chaussures, et euh, également tout un travail très, on pourrait dire, très américain du, euh, ce qu'on appelle le, le do it yourself un peu, c'est-à-dire le fait que euh, un artiste ne va pas se cantonner euh, forcément à un domaine, mais il va créer une sorte d'entreprise en quelque sorte artistique. Et euh, Daniel Archam, de ce point de vue-là, euh, donc est tout à fait, euh, on pourrait dire, cohérent avec ses convergents, avec cette, cette attitude. Il va créer notamment une unité avec Alex euh, Mustonen qui s'appelle Snark Architecture. Donc Snark Architecture, l'appellation est un peu bizarre, le Snark 
c'est un sarcasme en anglais, mais donc j'ai cherché un peu. Alors c'est aussi une protéine, c'est un animal de fiction inventé par Lewis Carroll, The Hunt of the Snark. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but okay. Et c'est aussi une bombe, it's also a bomb. Maybe you know, an American, very, very... Okay. Voilà, c'est une bombe. Alors, Snark Architecture, vous verrez à quoi ça ressemble. Je crois que les images parleront mieux que ce que je pourrais dire. Donc, les créations d'environnements assez singuliers, hein, c'est le moins qu'on puisse dire, assez décalés. Alors, également, tout un travail sur le design, hein, créer des objets fonctionnels, donc des lignes de produits même designés qui peuvent se, se vendre, intervenir... Euh, euh, en architecture aussi, par exemple, vous verrez euh, une intervention que, que Daniel Archam a faite euh, au, au stade de baseball euh, Orange Bowl à, à Miami. Et notamment, vous verrez, c'est assez intéressant, un travail lumière et un travail sculptural. Enfin, euh, il crée une compagnie de cinéma qui s'appelle Film of the Future, donc les films du, du futur. Alors, si j'avais à le définir, euh, avant qu'on évidemment on commence et qu'on approfondisse un peu, euh, quelles seraient ses, ses positions artistiques alors, euh, c'est très visible déjà, on a cette lune, ce globe terrestre, mais qui est une lune en réalité, donc c'est l'objet, c'est un art de l'objet, toujours. Euh, c'est un art du réagencement, vous verrez, euh, on prend le monde tel qu'il est, on le réagence, parfois d'une manière curieuse, on, vous allez voir un jardin japonais, par exemple, reconstitué, donc euh, avec euh, des, 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 des résines, mais une couleur, une couleur rose, par exemple. Bon, voilà, euh, une donnée très importante euh, chez l'artiste, vous le verrez, vous l'avez vu dans l'exposition, on va en parler, c'est une vision du présent depuis le futur, hein, sur le modèle d'une sorte de, de pseudo-archéologie. Vous avez dû remarquer déjà tous ces, ces objets retrouvés de, dans le futur, mais qui sont les objets de notre présent, un teddy bear, par exemple, un, un ballon, il hein, bon, y en a une infinité comme ça dans sa euh, production. Et puis, euh, une donnée plus importante peut-être, c'est des obsessions, l'obsession de la destruction, euh, on parlait peut-être de ce qui serait un, un hurricane fondateur, fundamental hurricane in your career, I, I don't know, mais aussi également le, le daltonisme, c'est un artiste daltonien. Donc comme il le dit, si vous, vous voyez un million de couleurs, moi je vois 100 couleurs. Voilà. Alors on a ça en commun, je suis daltonien moi aussi. Donc euh, voilà, bon il se trouve que c'est comme ça. Donc color blindness, quelque chose de très important parce que ça se traduit vous le verrez par un, un, un traitement très singulier de la couleur dans, 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 son, dans son travail. Voilà. Alors, je ne veux pas en dire plus, hein, si vous voulez. Je voulais juste cadrer un petit peu le, euh, le, le travail de, de, de Daniel Archa. Mais à présent, nous, nous allons procéder en voyant des, des images. Je crois que, que Daniel et moi, nous allons euh, commenter. OK, so, good afternoon, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you to be there. Uh, I hope you know you, you have refound your, your luggage lost in the airport, uh, Roissy, Charles I de Gaulle. I did, yes. Okay, good. Okay, so now we, we, we begin. We can begin. So I'm uh, going to show a selection yeah. of works that okay. um, sort of start at the beginning of, of my practice um, and are a kind of range of works from drawing to painting architectural studies. Um, these works are about 15 years old now. And from the beginning, I was interested in this kind of combination between architecture and nature. Um, the other thing you'll notice about these works is they don't contain um, people, right? I always wanted the works to have a sense where there was an imprint of humanity in it, but the works could float in time, right? This could be a thousand years from now. 
It could be a thousand years in the past. And the architectural um, constructions within these works often um, felt like they were in a state between construction and demolition, right? Decay and growth. Um, and as the work progressed, I began to incorporate other living uh, beings in there. I felt including uh, people in the works would link them to a specific time period. So I began incorporating these, these kind of um, these animals, um, which led to other works where I was thinking about the kind of alteration of, of uh, history, right? Can I, can I take objects from the past and make an imprint on them um, in a way of this kind of uh, historical alteration? Other kinds of historical alteration. Um, I've always been a fan of, of NASA and um, you know, growing up in, in uh, Miami, not far from uh, where the space shuttles were launched, the moon as a kind of icon within my work, as you see here. This one is actually not the moon, though. This is a, an invented, an invented moon, an invented is it moon a, a, of a, a recent work or not? Is yeah, this is uh, this is from last year. Okay. So this is uh, over the last two years, I've been um, working very closely with NASA at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in their studies around exoplanets, these kind of Earth-like worlds that may, um, that may exist. So these are invented moons around there. Moon, uh, which has a very import great importance in, in your world because it's, it's always coming back, and especially in this show, yeah, there's around all the question of cycles of, of the moon, always. Why? Why the moon? Why not the, the Earth, for instance? Because uh, when I, I have a look on your artwork, I, I, I get the impression sometimes that the Earth is also for you an exoplanet. Not only the, the moon or the other planet in the galaxy. There's a little bit too much color for me on the Earth. It's easier to um, kind of influence the, the play with shadow in the moon is something that I can directly influence and is a, a more kind of elegant form for me somehow, right? Okay. Um, but this kind of idea of historical alteration and thinking about manipulating, um, manip manipulating objects led me to this kind of idea of architectural manipulation. This was an exhibition at PS1 in um, 2005 where I began to, the same way that within the drawings there was um, architectural structures within nature, these were kind of the opposite for me. So they were natural erosions that were kind of creeping back into architecture, um, allowing the architecture to, to feel like it was in a state of decay or of growth. Um, and this idea of something that is between growth, this is a perfect example of these works that are stalactites, stalagmites, right? Um, yes, but uh, are you involved in, in kind of dystopic view of the world, of the evolution, of history? or post-apocalyptic view, because uh, when we see all this architecture melting, uh, flowing, uh, disappearing, the, the wall uh, destroyed by, by the heart, we, we think that may maybe you are in this uh, representation of the world, in a, maybe in a Philip Kadik post-art, uh, uh, in a way. I, I, I certainly like those kind of universes, but what I would say to that is when we look at objects from antiquity that are degraded and eroded, we don't necessarily associate them with apocalypse, right? This yes. is time sure. passing and, and um, history occurring. And even in um, the objects that I'll get to later that are uh, formed of crystal, 
they look eroded, but crystal is associated with growth. So the objects kind of rest between demolition and growth, right? Um, so uh, just I want to precise, I, I, I have to do that because I, I have forgotten to, to say that you are working with very special material, uh, non-conventional ones, uh, as ash, ashes for instance, crystal, uh, glacial rock, obsidian yeah. also, uh, rose quartz uh, and um, steel and also plaster of course but uh... so these works are, are manipulating the architecture directly and they're using the kind of materiality and our expectation about what architecture should do um, to kind of manipulate right people's understanding of it and all of the works um, blend uh, blend the architecture in ways that cause it to look like it's stretching or it's falling um, or it's melting and these works for me have a very uncanny sense about them. You know, um, my, uh, one of the first times my four-year-old son saw one of these works, he just started crying with, mm. from just uh, the compulsion of the image, right? Um, saying that a figure was trapped inside of the architecture. Yes, it's like of a, course. But uh, you, you are using one word which is, which is very important. It is the word uncanny. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this word is used by uh, Sigmund Freund, for, for instance, uh, to develop uh, this concept of um heimlichkeit. Uh, in French, uh, we say inquiétante étrangeté. Uh, so uh, another word is very important in, in your uh, artwork. It's the word anomaly. You are always speaking about anomalies, as if uh, art crafting, art making, art thinking uh, could be totally impossible to conceive uh, related to the real, for instance, related to, to the uh, accurateness, for instance. You understand? In some ways, I think all art, in a sense, is an anomaly, right? It's something that was compelled into existence, and it's often something that causes a viewer to rethink their everyday life, yes. their everyday um, surroundings. And so I like this idea of, of anomaly um, as a way to describe things that are outside of, of the everyday. Um, these works are figures that are almost like the figures from Pompeii, right? Yes, yes, Re recast uh, yes. In, in ash. I have written that it's an, uh, a contemporary Pompeii. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But these are made of, of broken glass, which has been sourced from buildings uh, which have been destroyed. So it's a kind of collapse and reconstruction of, of, uh, of something. Um, and this is getting a little bit to the work that I've done in, in dance and, and um, in stage design began to influence um, and was the first time that I brought figures into the work, right? I said before that I didn't put figures in the work because it tied it to a specific time period. But if I'm making them in these materials that we associate with geology, ash and, and, and yes. other materials, the works can kind of float in time. Yes, but uh, you play also with figures of history, of archaeology. I remember, for instance, you did a sculpture from the, uh, uh, the dying Gaul. It's uh, le, le Galate Mourant, ou le Gaulois Mourant, uh, excuse me. It's a very famous sculpture, which is uh, collected by a museum in Vatican, in yeah. Roma. It is very famous because it's... Uh, it's a, a sculpture where what is shown, it is a respect due to the death, to the death man, the, the, the man who is agonizing. So. Yeah. And uh, you take this model and you, you adapt it and you transform it uh, in a contemporary uh, icon, uh, in a way. 
you play also with uh, I like those, images from the past. Sure, I like those um, those types of objects because I think they, even if you don't know what that work is, you've, you've probably seen it. If you're aware of art history, and it's a kind of icon. The same way that when I'm selecting um, works for this kind of fictional archaeological world, yes. I'm picking things that I find to be iconic across culture, right? Mm. These are just a couple of views of my, my old studio um, and the studio now, and you can see that the, the environment is very sort of um, collaborative. I also have uh, an architecture practice uh, called Snarkitecture, which, which Paul discussed, um, which has allowed me to expand some of the ideas that were present in my work into an architectural scale, right? Yes. These so are things here that... Here it is in Miami. This is Miami. I, the Orange Bowl Stadium. Yeah. Okay, and so, what is it exactly? Because uh, we, we, we can read the expression won to so win. Uh, the letters that you see here were taken from a building that sat on this same site, which was demolished. And it, yeah. I created the sculpture as if the letters had fallen off and lodged themselves okay. in the ground. Mm -hmm. But we didn't actually reuse the, the existing letters. They were remade as you would make a building. And this is really where this kind of architectural nature um, comes into the work. Yeah. As the letters fall, they can also form new meanings, right? It's a kind of, uh, a, the same way that I made this appropriation of the dying Gaul, this is an appropriation of something familiar, at least to people there, yes. and a, a kind of recreation of it. Wow. Um, and architecture also allows us to think about um, uh, works on an architectural scale and, and thinking about architecture the way that we might think about sculpture. This is an architecture of excavation, right? Instead of building a, a space, you like, it's you, a removal. You like caves. I do and like inner caves. spaces <laughs> where it's possible to, to close oneself inside. So I'm preparing okay. for the apocalypse. Uh, when I, I was uh, looking at this, this, this work, especially, I was thinking to uh, a very, very famous uh, modernist artist. Uh, it was uh, Gordon Mataclark. Sure. When uh, Gordon Mataclark in New Jersey, uh, surrounding is a splitting and house, it's a very famous uh, artwork. We, we see there is a movie showing uh, Mata Clark working a lot, uh, and we see this fence, and, and through the fence we see the sun, the rays of the sun coming, and uh, it's like a little bit like that. And a curious archaeologist of the, of the present, maybe. I mean, certainly Gordon Mata Clark's appropriation of architecture and the idea of the home and manipulating our sense of that is something that I've paid attention to quite heavily in my work. Um, I think that where Gordon Mata Clark's work is a direct manipulation of something, he's not adding anything, right? He's cutting something that's already existing. Much of our work is about the addition of something uh, or the, the manipulation of something that's yes. already there. Um, this is a project uh, a number of years ago where we just took the material of the tent and made these, um, these kind what of What is it exactly? It. Just uh, seats or what is it? Uh, this was an entrance benches, pavilion. This is an entrance pavilion for Design Miami um, during Art Basel in Miami. And it was based around a kind of infill of a, of a space and then lifting up. So okay. when you look at it from the outside, the form that's on the top there is an is a inverse of the negative space underneath. It's like a very easy architecture to understand and kind of read. Um, but star architecture is always kind of about this uh, manipulation of... Um, uh, it's a blank. It's a blank. Okay, just uh, so, some, some, some words. Uh, 
you like also to create environments, but not only for uh, galleries, art galleries, but uh, environments that people can visit. And uh, especially a very famous one is uh, the beach, the yeah. beach, La Plage. It's an environment you did in Washington in the new building museum yeah. some, some years ago. We, we see one, uh, uh, one view, uh, actually. So you see that a very urge environment with millions of bowls, plastic bowls, white plastic bowls, and the ability for, for audience, for, for people to, to swim inside as if uh, they were in the water. Uh, directly, maybe we we get, we get some ima other images. Snarkitecture is often yeah. interested in creating um, experiences where architecture can be playful, right? Architecture we think of as something so static and permanent and fixed, and whenever we can create a scenario where there's play involved in it, mm -hmm. and also this idea of reduction of materials, right? This is a single material multiplied millions of times that becomes an environment. Um, and we've used this strategy, the same thing with the tubes that are coming down. It's a, in this multiplication, you're able to uh, form a, a kind of experience. I have just something to ask you about the production. Because when we see this kind of artwork, of course we, we consider that it's not uh, able, it's not possible to do that uh, alone uh, in the quietness of your workshop. Uh, uh, related to the classical vision of the artist. Some, someone who is a quiet, uh, thinking, and, and making art in a... That's not me okay. at all. <laughs> but here, no. Of course, you are involved uh, with uh, uh, manufacturers, maybe, with a uh, So, for instance, uh, a, pro a project like uh, The Beach. How do you work, exactly? Uh, a project like The Beach, um, yes. we have an architectural team, and the project is designed the same way that you would design a building and a contractor or a producer is actually constructing it, right? This project, it's difficult to see in the image, but the whole project is sloped. So it, it's like a, literally like yes, a beach yes. as, you, as you go down. Yeah. Um, and it was designed There by, is a, a very interesting video on YouTube. Huh? Everybody can, uh, can see it. It's very easy to see. And uh, it's very eloquent, yes. So who are these very famous guys? <laughs> Maybe you could introduce ourselves to yeah. them. So in 2005, I was approached by Merce Cunningham, who yes, is on, on the left. Yes, on the left. Here. Yes. And on the right is is uh, Robert Rauschenberg. And you know, in the 1950s, they were creating a new way of of making performance, making dance, that was entirely reliant on John Cage's idea around chance. And when Merce asked me um, to make a piece for him, it was for a stage design. I had never, uh, we're blank again. No, no, I had but never, speak, uh, it's coming. Yeah. I had never worked in stage before. I had never been on a stage before. Yeah. And he uh, essentially invited me to create this piece not knowing what I would make. He used... Um, it was the first time for you. It was the first yeah. time yeah. being on a stage, yeah. actually. It was a very a great privilege, I, I imagine, because you were very young at this moment. 2006? I, uh, I was 24 and yeah. he was 84 when I met him. And so I approached the, the stage design um, much the same way that I would approach uh, cr the creation of a sculpture, right? I made drawings and studies of it and um, built models and all of that. Um, but I was really interested in, in the way that he used the space of the stage. So he had a concept where a dancer would exit on one side of the stage, walk behind and come out on the other side, mm -hmm. called a crossover. And my stage design looked as if a building was sinking into the floor and then coming out of the, yes. the roof. So this kind of frozen, um, 
frozen moment, right, of, of passing through space. Um, and I continued to collaborate with him on a number of different pieces. You know, Merce was willing to allow me to make whatever I wanted yes. because he didn't know uh, or he didn't want to know what I was uh, going to make for the stage. His feeling was that uh, he would make the dance, an artist would make the set design, and a musician would make the score. The three of them would come together for the performance, but none of us would know what the other one was doing. Oh, yes. Sounds a bit crazy, but it often works. And it, his, um, his understanding of chance and that procedure allowed him, as he would say, to find things that he wouldn't have otherwise chosen to do. I want to pose you a question, just maybe to, we stay one, one, one second on, on these images, but we get the impression that in your artwork, man has always to be lost in something. Lost in time, lost in space, lost in architecture, and at least lost in art. Why? I don't know. I, I've, never, uh, I've never had it put to me that way before, but it's actually a very appropriate way of thinking about it. I think, you know, this is a reason why uh, I continue to make work. I haven't found yeah. what I'm looking for okay, yet. Okay, okay. Yeah? Good. So maybe we go on? So some images from the... It's a, it was a... This was a, a performance... Ave Space Ballet, this one? Or no, no, this was no, a performance where he often allowed the audience to come on the stage and create a smaller performance. Um, and Merce died in 2009 and had asked that I uh, create the stage design for the final um, uh, performances. These were some early studies of the works that I ended up making for that, which were these massive clouds. Um, uh, where is it exactly? Uh, this is at the Park Avenue Armory in, okay. New, in New York City. Okay, New York. And Merce had decided um, before his death that the company would terminate uh, after his death, yeah. wouldn't go on. So this was it the was final... It was two years maybe uh, before he died? It was two years, uh, yeah, after. Okay. He died in 2009, huh? Yeah. And so, so the, it, it was his last choreography done in New York. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of 2011, which was composed based on works that he had created in his life. It was a kind of mixture of works. Um, but the stage design is something that, after his death, I pursued with one of his uh, dancers, a choreographer named Jonah Bocaire. And we created pieces that actually allow the dancers to interact with the work. When I worked with Merce, I could never make something that the dancers would touch or interact with because he didn't want to know what I was making. Yes. With Jonah, it's the opposite. The, the um, sculpture elements on the stage, the, the um, scenography, is actually part of the performance and in many cases but causes yeah. him so to... So part to of improvisation was important? Maybe it's less improvisation, much. maybe improvisation in the building of the work and yes. allowing the materials to kind of define how he may move around uh, space. Um, you know, this work uses a massive roll of paper as a, as a prop and the paper also forms the sound, this massive yes, kind of, of thunderous yeah. um, sound. Yeah. In this case, there were dancers that were using cameras made of chalk and, and inscribing the lines. They treated the cameras um, as if they didn't know what they were. And do you show also the, the light, the enlightenment of the... No. no, this is a lighting designer who did... Oh, because the, it's, it's very monochromatic, and you like especially what is monochromatic. Well, so. you know, I'm also colorblind, so okay. that restricts my, my ability um, to to participate often in discussions around color and light. Um, 
This is another piece that uses thousands of ping pong balls that cascade and move around um, the stage. And we've continued um, to develop this process of thinking about how my, uh, my work in, in, that I show in galleries and museums can be incorporated into uh, performance works. In this case, it uses a projection, a massive projection of works that are being destroyed throughout the piece and then reconstructed. But for you to create sets, that's not enough. You want to be involved in the in the creation, uh, dense dense creation, and so on, and scenography. Mm, no, I don't get so much no. involved with with the choreography. I may make suggestions to him about how an object can influence a movement. Right, this piece I, I actually has. I because it, it looks very important for you to to make art. Yes, but to to involve this art to, in something else, which is an, an like an enlargement. I think that. Anytime I can bring audiences who are either outside the art world or inside the art world to see dance and film and other things kind of blend this, this uh, community, it's beneficial to me, right? I it wonder broadens that the audience. Why? Because uh, your heart looks very autonomous, but the way you are working, making art, is not absolutely not autonomous. And uh, I feel a, a kind of very productive contradiction here. But maybe I'm wrong. But I'm full of contradictions. Oh, no. No, really. Uh, Me not, you know. Absolutely not. All of the work has this, this, uh, this conflict in a, in a sense about history, about the, the evolution of time. Um, okay, so we have, to, we have to speak about history now. So I, I was very, very astonished to, to see these uh, drawings, these drawings. Uh, I don't know the date, datation. When, when did you? These draw? were made in 2010, and uh, 2010. 10. Okay. And I was approached to to make a book about some place in the world. But you were here in uh, in the Chile, and uh, I went to Easter Island. I spent uh, two months there, and I made all of these paintings while I was there on the island. And often when people visit the island, they see only a small part of it. But because I was there for so long, I really explored every, every aspect of it. And this island is, you know, obviously famous for the statues, um, but also the history around how they constructed them, what happened to the people there. But and we it, don't know exactly what happened. The, there are many the, theories. The, 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 there was a lack of water, there was a lack of, of food well, in these uh, Easter Islands. The main story is that the, island, the whole island is uh, about the, half the size of Manhattan. You can walk across it in four hours. They were building these statues, these immense giant statues, and competing with each other, the two different tribes. And in order to construct the statues, they had to cut down trees. And eventually, yes. they cut down all of the trees, which yes. the island is so isolated, there's not another... Then they couldn't even make boats to leave, so they were stranded in this uh, environment of their own making. Yes. It's, it's often used as a... Uh, but maybe it's a parable. As a parable for what's what happening what we are actually Earth. living. Uh, yeah. Maybe what here is uh, are the East, Easter Island, now it's the Earth. Because uh, maybe this we, parallel we, has we been use often all the woods we need to make boats to, to leave the Earth now, maybe. That's what Elon Musk we are is working on. Yeah. Okay, so... What? So when I came back from this trip, I, you know, I thought a lot about archaeology and, and specifically about how in some ways it's an invented idea, right? We don't know actually what happened here. There's many theories about it. And I thought, you know, can I, 
can I kind of reverse engineer this, this archaeology? Can I take an object that's from now and cause it to appear as if it has a, a kind of uh, historical history behind it? Can, it? can it look antiquated? And I did this in, in the beginning by using materials that I felt were associated with, ge with geology geological time for, frame. For, is it marble or what is it, stone? This uh, one is crushed stone, oh, yeah. Okay, crushed stone. Um, and I, as I was developing, I, I sort of built different um, ways of making this, different uh, materials. And I settled on materials that I felt were completely associated with um, a kind of geological time frame, things that form over millions and, and, and millions of years, like crystal, volcanic ash, and reforming these objects that we associate with a particular time period as if they had been excavated in the future. And I think there's a, going back to this idea of the uncanny, when you know something and it feels foreign to you at the same time, this is where this sense is coming from, right? Yes. Like a haunted house is uncanny. It's a familiar environment, but it's, there's something off about it. Um, and so these works, you know, I'm always choosing things that I, um, that I feel are kind of icons of a particular moment um, and that are recognizable across uh, a sort of wide swath of, of, uh, of people. Um, and I incorporated this, uh, here's the dying goal piece oh, that you're you talking about. You see the dying goal. Uh, we, yeah. we were speaking about this, this culture, so... And I created an additional tension by the removal of the, the weight Wait. of the statue, right? Um, so these works de developed and I began to think about sections of these pieces and, and um, the same way that I pulled staircases and other elements from architecture, um, thinking about um, just pieces of things. This was the last exhibition that I had here at uh, Gallery Paratin, which was, I think, uh, 2014. Um, full stage that was made, uh, all the instruments are constructed from volcanic ash. Mm -hmm. And in thinking about... Okay, oh, it's a very interesting uh, image, yes. In thinking about this idea of archaeology, I had made the objects from the archaeological site, right? Um, and this was a project where I was able, able to actually create the site itself and excavate out of the floor of the space um, and even create the sense that uh, I actually dug underneath the foundation and the objects continue to move beyond that. So you had the sense that underneath all of this surface is this kind of buried um, history. Um, and these, there's a gradient in the work as well uh, from the column in the center moving from crystal out to uh, volcanic ash. How do you co correlate your artwork maybe with a pop art, with pop art tradition, which is a, the great tradition of uh, object, uh, object, conception object? So, because here, uh, of course, it's not possible not to sing to the uh, canonical post, uh, pop art uh, by Andy Warhol or Robert Rosenberg. We 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 saw uh, a moment before on the on the image, but uh, it's now the. It's no more the triumph of the object. It's it's a, always the death of the object. We are uh, in well. In this case, worlds, it's definitely the death. We of are the also. Object. It's like we we were actually in a parallel parallel world, you know. And from this parallel world, we are looking at what uh, what we are exactly. We we refine our object, uh, the daily life uh, objects. They are all 
all uh, there uh, under uh, our eyes. So it's very curious. I think where the work may cross over with this idea of pop is in the selection of the objects. Because I'm choosing radios and phones and things that are kind of everyday, they, they, they overlap. You choose tools also. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. only devices, electronic devices. Exactly. Right. But, but always things that are iconic. And pop art used iconic images and, and forms and logos um, to, to uh, tie into something that we already knew, that was familiar. Um, you'll notice that many of the works preceding this lack color. And as I said before, I'm, I'm colorblind. And I uh, received some lenses uh, about two and a half years ago that uh, partially correct my colorblindness. My, my eye doctor says that it's bullshit, that it doesn't actually do anything. But uh, what, it, what it's supposed to do is the areas of deficiency, it artificially expands the wavelength of light. So I, once I got there these glasses... There is a video also where you are speaking with your ophthalmologist on, on YouTube. Yeah. It's very interesting. And for me, it was really a discovering because I, I was not aware of the fact that it was possible to correct uh, a, bl a color blindness. Yeah. She okay. said that it, I was tricking myself into thinking yeah. that I could see she, uh, she, wider she color. She crafted new uh, uh, spectacles for you. Especially, yeah. and yeah. It, it's going good, uh, well on, on. So I'm not wearing them now, as yeah, you see, course. and I, st I sort of stopped wearing them every day, but I use them in the studio to have a, an objective view of color. And once I've selected the color, then I feel I don't need to wear them anymore. I am yeah. speaking about that. It's not to insist on a, on a health problem or on a disease, uh, but it's because you, you insist also a lot about this question when you are speaking about your heart, where you are explaining the reason why we don't find a lot of colors in your uh, artwork. So you use this uh, colored blindness as an argument, as an artistic argument, as an aesthetics also. It's very important, of course. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, an artist must be, uh, must create work that is subjective, but also must have an understanding of the way that other people see. And if I have the feeling that I'm making something that to me looks one way and to everyone else it looks another way, it's difficult to know what it can mean and, 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 and where it's going. And so with the glasses, I feel I have a more objective view of this color. And it also expands the possibility for me of materials. So I was using crystal and other materials before, but always kind of white to black. These are formed of crystal, which is, has this blue color. It's a uh, blue calcite crystal. Um, and, you know, speaking about this idea of pop and this icons... Is, is a heavy symbolistic color in the history of art of the 20th century due to Yves Klein, sure. for instance. Yeah, it also happens to be... It's impossible not to sing to, to him when yeah. we see this kind of artwork, blue ones. Yeah, and I'm certainly, you know, tapping into that a little bit. Um, this color happens to be, you know, the other thing that uh, is nice about the glass is that it reinforces the color that I do see well and that I, that I don't see differently with the glasses. I know everyone sees like that. Um, and this blue color, which I'm also using a little bit in the exhibition that's, uh, that's opening tonight, um, is something that I see quite well. But it's a little bit cruel because uh, for Yves Klein, for, for, for instance, the blue was a kind of color of immortality, of eternity. And uh, now I made the it news, into death. you do, you kill, you kill the E, 
the IKB, uh, International Klein Blue, you can kill it. Uh, uh, I think he would have. I think he would have appreciated shame. that. He had a he had a dark side too. Okay, maybe we could have a look on this very uh, very very uh, curious uh, garden stone uh, stone garden Japanese stone garden. You yeah. are exhibiting actually in New York there's, until the end of November. There's one in New York and there's uh, one in Rio. Okay. Um, okay. So just before that, this is a selection of some okay. recent works in Moscow on a. So because it, it it is pink. It's not a normal color for a garden. Normally, Certainly. a garden it is green, it's brown, yeah, but pink. Mm. This is this is the same Rock idea. Rock singers are, are pink sometimes, but, but not gardens. But so it's the same idea about the alteration of the everyday. I'm taking something. Certainly, these gardens are familiar. Maybe I'll just skip ahead to them so we can talk about that. So certainly we're familiar with this idea of, um, of this garden, and I've spent a lot of time uh, over the last few years in Japan. My wife is Japanese, and um, I happen to just love it there. And one of the th interesting things for me um, about these gardens is they're the same now as they were hundreds of years ago. The pattern in the sand is the same, um, yet they're actually remade every single day. The, the leaves are removed, and they're a kind of mixture of ephemerality and permanence, right? Yes, yes. Um, and so I'm taking that idea that relates to time in these works and blending it with my own conception. Uh, again, using something that I know is iconic and familiar to people, and all it is is a subtle shift in color. This is a replica of a, of a tea house in Tokyo, uh, in Kyoto. Um, and all of the objects uh, inside it are all replicated, but replaced with a, a new color or a new material. It's like a synthesis of your whole work, but is it possible for the, uh, the visitor to enter in inside? No? They can see it from the outside. Oh, and okay. what I had um, every day, there was uh, somebody who was re-raking the garden, while the audience was present. So they were actually able to see the transformation from a kind of little bit messed up space with the leaves and things like that back into a perfect uh, gradient. And I've continued um, this exploration with uh, another garden, uh, this is currently in New York, that um, forms a kind of gradient of color across uh, the space. Um, and it's a perfect replica of a, of a garden and even the tree, although it's sculpted, is based on a tree from a, um, a museum called Nezu Museum in, that's in Tokyo. And I recently had the, the fortune um, to create this work outside uh, in Rio, which is a, a six-month project um, that brings this kind of drastic uh, evolution of color uh, into the garden with a gradient of um, of black to uh, of of uh, blue to white, and perfectly frames also this um, this natural element. One of the 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 parts of the the gardens that are inside that I'm not able to bring in is the idea of nature. Right, the gardens are often um, built around some natural uh, structure or element, rocks or or trees, um, and this is influencing the the patterns of the sand as well. 
Well, so we are finished with the images. Yeah. Okay, so thanks very much. Uh, before we, we give the, the, the speech to the audience, I want maybe to, to see some uh, different little things. First, I, I wrote some sentences as Pompeii revisited. For instance, or a curious relationship with time. The future is now, and we have to go back to the present. For instance, uh, or, and so on. Uh, I don't want to. Uh, oh yes, uh, uh, I wanted to to get one statement about your entire uh, artwork. So uh, I, I, I look for a, a sentence resuming. What is it? And I, I wrote to create. What, what is it? to create parallel uh, worlds? Worlds to recreate the world and to profile it in the form of a parallel world, that's the mission of the artist for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the manipulation of the everyday, everything that I make is actually already familiar to people. And I'm using their familiarity with it to actually manipulate their feeling about it. If you recognize something and it's different from what you expect, there's a, there's a sense in there, maybe uncanny sense, it's an anomaly, and this is where I want the work to reside. Yes, but I have to pose a question uh, before Odayan speaks with you eventually. Uh, what about uh, identity? What about of uh, uh, contemporary problem as migrations, uh, poverty, as violence? All that seems uh, not to find a place in your artwork, as if we were not living in the same world. Why? Well, I certainly have because opinions it, it's about... It's a criticism I have heard about this work, so it's not uh, especially what I am thinking, but uh, people sometimes say, but excuse me, yes, of course, it's, it's beautiful, it's, uh, it's elegant, uh, it's, in, it's smart, it's a very smart uh, vision of, of the world. But where is the true world in this artwork? And, and why is it not there? Certainly, I have uh, opinions, and I have a feeling about many of the things that are happening in the world. Um, and I am friendly with a great number of artists who make commentary about this, artists like JR and, and Ai Weiwei. But I also believe that art is a place for um, thinking about the everyday in a different way. My comments on uh, something like mass migration or political system in the United States will not bring people outside of what's already happening. This is, you can call it an escape if you want, but at least it's a way to think about your everyday life, your everyday surroundings in a new way. And actually I think that that sense, this way of, of creating a, a context where people can rethink the everyday can be quite profound and, and quite polemic actually as a statement. Okay, thank you very much. So uh, I have a look of, of my, uh, on my watch. So. Uh, Vanessa Cléret uh, uh, said me it was possible to exchange with, uh, with Daniel Arsham if you want. So there is a, a microphone here, so I give you uh, the, the power now. Thanks. Hi Daniel. Hello, Hello. my name is Quinn. I'm from New York. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask about how you think 2D art differs from 3D art and uh, the deeper meanings between each and how each can convey a different type of deeper meaning. I still uh, 
make drawings every day in, and I carry a notebook and um, I think that at least in my practice, painting was an early way for me to describe ideas that were not yet physically possible for me, either because of um, lack of resources um, or, or lack of space. Um, and I think that I tend to use um, painting more as a way of studying ideas now, right? Um, uh, rather than, for me, like sometimes the execution is more in the, the physical world, three-dimensional world. Merci. Est-ce qu'il y a peut-être une autre question? Uh, oui. Hey, I'm Lucas from Hamburg. Um, I have a question. Um, how do you deal with the question of authorship um, and setting a frame in, in, in an architecture which, which is opposed to a fixed, um, yeah, a fixed ray um, of an ever-changing architecture? I'm especially talking about this work with the um, balls where the people could play with the balls. You're talking about authorship? Authorship, yes, because I'm, there is kind of the sentiment of like a political dimension in it when you're saying that you're creating a playful or is changing architecture opposed to a fixed architecture. So I think that, you know, one of the stated goals, Snarkitecture is based, um, the name at least, on a, a Lewis Carroll kind of nonsense poem called The Hunting of the Snark. And in this poem, there's a group of kind of idiots who are searching for a beast called the snark. They use a white map. There's nothing on the map. And it's, um, it's been said it's a, an improbable voyage by an improbable crew to find an inconceivable creature. And this idea of trying to find the unknown is something that we explore heavily um, in snarkitecture and try to create spaces where um, not only architecture is playful, but that it can be, it crosses cultural lines, it crosses age, you know, anyone approaching this ha can have a, a sort of experience with it. And I, that for me is just interesting. Merci. Oh, just le, le micro, c'est enregistré, je crois. Merci. Thanks. As an artist, do you generally achieve a sense of completion? Getting close to what you want, the vision you wanted to convey. Completion? Yes, sense of completion. What is it? Excuse me. Completion. A finality. If the ah, work is, is done. Uh, no, never. <laughs> never. So, <laughs> so keep trying. It's lovely. Well, and why? If I, if I ever felt like the works were completely finished or the ideas were completely finished, then the work would cease. Um, the same way if you see an object, you know, um, in the exhibition here, I have these cast um, bears, like stuffed at toys from, from children. And at first glance, they appear like they're de degrading, like they're falling apart, right? But they're made of crystal, and this is a material that we associate that's growing over time. So there's a question, is it falling apart, or is it actually growing back together to a kind of finality or completion? So I'm basically in the same place that the bear is. Yes, uh, I, have, uh, I had a look, a precise look on, on your artwork in uh, its entire, entirety, but I have not seen a self-portrait of you. The glass figure? Yes. The first one that I've shown is me. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people, yeah. uh, they look as, uh, as we look. I did but that. But you, you, you are not in your uh, artwork, but I, you are. In that uh, one you I make am. a lot of uh, self-portrait with movies. 
you like a lot to be presented in your movies, to, to speak, to explain, uh, and to, to play a role uh, also as a character. Mm. You like that. You, you are ready to, for Oscars, maybe. I don't know about that, but... <laughs> a ceremony. I think uh, this, the film that you're talking about is a mixture of documentary yeah. and fiction. But I want to in insist about this uh, importance for you of filming, of making movies. You create a, may maybe a production corporation, a little one, I don't know, but... Uh... I did this because in many of the questions about this work, there was the same point that you made about apocalyptic sense. And for me, it wasn't that. It was more about an exploration of time. Mm -hmm. yes. And so the narrative structure within film is a way for me to more tightly articulate that idea, right, within, within film. I want to insist about one movie you, you did, uh, which is Hourglass Part Two. Uh, people can uh, find it on YouTube. It's not uh, difficult, to, difficult to, 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 to see it. And uh, what is very interesting in, in this film, it's the way you, you seem to, to tell a story which, which could be your story as a teenager with your parents uh, in an house when an hurricane is coming. This hurricane comes, it destroys everything around you and you began to go through the landscape and to, to try to find different things, destroyed things. And at this moment, we understand that you are exactly speaking about what you are making as an artist. So it's the reason why I wanted to, to, to mention this, uh, this movie from you. Some uh, question maybe? Uh, oh. from America. Uh, you mentioned that your wife was Japanese, which made me think about Japanese culture. And um, your work always seems to involve a dialogue between order and chaos, or perfection versus imperfection, which reminds me of the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi. Um, Japanese culture also values craftsmanship tremendously, like for example with our carpentry. Can you talk about uh, how both of these concepts, if you agree with that, and if uh, like the importance of those in your work? There's a, I mean, wabi-sabi is certainly one thing that I'm familiar with, but I, I visited Japan probably 20 times in the last 10 years, and there was a sense that I, that I had about the way that people are and the care that they take with everything, and I didn't quite know how to describe that. And when I was working on this project in Rio, there happens to be a very large Japanese uh, population in, in Brazil. And the curator told me there's, there's a name for this uh, concept, and it's motenashi, which the literal translation is like hospitality when, when somebody is uh, waiting on you or you're in a hotel. But it's really about care with everything you do, from the way you walk to the way you bow, even the way when you're handed a business card, it's with two hands so that it gives value to the object and so that you don't drop it, right? All of these things are considered, and I think that a consideration of um, everyday life in that way is something that I um, aspire to, and I, I hope to achieve. Merci. Autre question, peut-être? Bien. Alors, je vois qu'il est l'heure de conclure. We have to conclude now, but I want to finish maybe with a, 
a sentence, sentence by you okay. I have found uh, in uh, one of your movies. I have the feeling that the present doesn't really exist. So are you really here or not? Excuse me, are there, is a, there is a last, I'm sorry, but there is a last question, very last question for Daniel. Uh, Stéphane, oh, excuse me. Okay, Stéphane from Paris. And uh, uh, have you already did any collaboration with some des fashion designer? Because in, our, in your PowerPoint, I saw a lot of connection with uh, clothes. I, I haven't specifically, but I have a number of friends who are designers um, in New York, and it's uh, the, the costumes that were in the, the performances were made by a friend of mine who has a, a company in Los Angeles called Stamped, and he created all of these costumes that were um, layers, layers of clothes that were actually removed over the course of the, of the dance and sort of informed the movement in, in a sense. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm not sure I have to repeat this question, but maybe to finish, uh, I have the feeling, you say, that the prison doesn't really exist. So I was... Uh, uh, asking you, are you really here now? Are you I'm an actually, hologram? Yeah, I'm actually always kind of thinking about the future. Okay. So I'm, f I'm 10 seconds ahead of you. <laughs> okay. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Merci à l'audience. Merci à tous.